Welcome back to Thought Crime and Keto and Crime. We're getting right into part two of the Jody Arias Travis Alexander case. Want to say a big to all my wonderful channel members and Patreons. If you would like to join them, those links are down below. Or if you're looking for some cool merch, those links are above. As well as if you have not seen part one of this story, I highly recommend you check that out first. I'll link it up here. And with that being said, let's jump right into it. Last week, we left off with Travis Alexander's background. Now let's get into the perpetrator herself, Jody Arias. Jody Ann Arias was born July 9, 1980 in Salinas, California to William and Sandra Arias. Uh, William was of Mexican ancestry and Sandra was of German and English ancestry. Salinas is a small town near the Central Valley in Northern California and pretty modest middle class type of city. Um, a lot of my favorite country in California is up in the northern part. When you get to the Central Valley, Fresno, and up, that's my literally my favorite part of California. And she was one of four. She had two uh, siblings, Colin, Joseph, excuse me, three, Colin, Joseph, and Angel. And she had a half-sister, Julie, from her dad's previous relationship but she was the oldest of Bill and Sandra's children. She had a pretty normal middle-class upbringing. Um, her family was in the restaurant business. They, they owned several diners, and also Sandra worked as a manager in other uh, diners as well as a server, and then later on as a dental assistant. The kids had a great time growing up. The parents were very involved. They took normal middle-class vacation. She loved animals of all time, and at the age of 10, she was given a camera as a gift, and her lifelong love of photography was born. She would literally take pictures of anything. Uh, unfortunately, her family didn't really encourage her. They didn't feel that anything in the arts was a viable way to make a living, so they were more into her going into the family restaurant business or pursuing other things, but nevertheless, Jody did pursue artistic endeavors. In addition to photography, she played the flute and the piano. She also loved to color and draw. In school, Jody did moderately well. She was held back in kindergarten and was eventually um, moved from private to public school when they relocated to Santa Maria and then later Eureka. Wairica, California, uh, another Northern California town, where she finished her growing up in the public school system there. They lived at 1020 Oregon Street and had a basketball hoop and a fenced yard, so a pretty normal all-American growing up. Uh, her friends at the local public high school said she was nice but painfully shy. She excelled in Spanish class and art class and worked part-time as a server at her family's diner. Again, family wasn't really encouraging to her art, so she didn't really pursue anything except waiting tables, as that would 
kind of carry on into her after afterlife as well. Um, she could be very disobedient. Uh, she often ran away if she didn't get her um, get her way. She was moody. She would get into crying rage, crying jags and rages. Uh, she threatened suicide a couple of times. Uh, but because it was the 80s and the 90s, uh, mental health was had even a bigger stigma than it does today. And I think that's still really sad. This is just after Reagan closed the asylums after all. So yeah, mental health had a huge stigma. And as a result, her parents just didn't want to admit that she may have a problem and get her some help. Uh, her parents just became stricter to keep her under control. Uh, corporal punishment was a regular thing in their house from anything from a wooden spoon to it. My, my mom used to whip me with a paint stirrer. I mean, whatever a parent in the 80s and 90s could get their hands on, that's what you got walloped with. I can't even walk past Sherman Williams without doing a full body shiver, y'all. But so that's the reason I'm not just absolutely freaking out at the fact corporal punishment was used because it was used on me. It's just mainstay. Um, maybe we were better off when it was mainstay. I don't know. I don't want to get into that debate, but I'm just commenting. Now, what I do disagree with is them not obviously not getting her help for obvious mental illness and using corporal punishment as kind of a therapy or a deterrent. But anyway, Jody would later describe these things in the court case as abuse. Uh, at the age of 14, they caught her with some weed on top of the uh, roof, growing it in some potted plants. Now, being that it's legal in California now, this doesn't sound like a big thing, but in the you know 90s, it's kind of a big deal. So... Um, there are conflicting reports, um, various articles and books I read on the subject. Some say she had one weed seed, which if that was the case, she was maybe just seeing if she could grow it. And others say she had quite a little garden going on up there. I don't know what is the truth. But because of this, her parents grounded her, searched her room, and they lost all trust with Jody. As, and, and as well, Jody lost all trust with them. And it was here that all hell kind of broke loose with the RASs. Um, Jody would sneak out even after being grounded. Uh, her dad would find her and use corporal punishment on her. So you can see there's just more and more of a snowball effect going on here and not in the reverse good kind of way. Uh, she would resent them for the rest of her life for the kind of stuff that was going on. Now, Jody really strove to be a California kid. Uh, because of her uh, his, uh, Latino uh, and Latina ancestry, she was olive-skinned uh, and dark-complected, dark dark-brown eyes, dark hair, but she sought to be truly California. So she dyed her, bleached her hair blonde from a teen, and that tradition would carry on through most of her adult life. Um, and as a result of her being uh, blonde, olive-skinned, uh, Let's just say she was shapely. Later on in her life, she would get breast implants to make herself even more shapely. She was the central focus of a lot of boys, as you can imagine. And when, I guess, she discovered boys, they became kind of the central focus of her life, much to her parents' dismay. And, like most teenage girls, she liked the bad boys. Uh, at the, uh, in 1995, uh, nearby uh, Salinas, hosted uh, the California State Fair, and she went with some of her friends, and there she spotted a 
18-year-old goth guy by the name of Bobby Juarez, though she didn't know that that day. She kept staring at him, and eventually, he was on crutches, he had a hurt leg, and eventually he kind of motioned over, and they talked, and ended up riding some rides together, and had a good day, but never got each other's name, which I thought was weird. Uh, and so they parted ways. She never thought she would see him again. He was very dark-complected, obviously, of Latino uh, ancestry as well. Then, at her high school in Wairika, and forgive me if I'm not saying uh, that the name of that city correctly, uh, the, the, many of the articles and things I listened to on Audible also said Wairika, so if it's supposed to be Eureka, and I know there is an actual Eureka, California as well, let me know if I screwed this up. But anyway, let me know down below. I can take it. But anyway, she saw him at a homecoming football game at her high school and then discovered his name was Bobby Juarez and he was 18 and a senior and they immediately started dating. Uh, every day at lunch she would meet him at a convenience store across from her school that uh, had an arcade and they would spend their lunch hour holding hands, kissing, and uh, playing video games. He was very much into the occult. He was a huge believer in vampires. He literally thought vampires were a real thing. Uh, he wanted to go live with them in San Francisco where he thought the grant over the vampires lived. Uh, there's some blood-sucking politicians in uh, San Francisco, so maybe he's not entirely wrong. But he also wanted to get very serious very quick. And less than a year into the relationship in spring of 1996, she broke up to it, broke up with him. Uh, he ended up trying to commit suicide by cutting his own wrist. It ended up in inpatient care for about 60 days as a result of the breakup. Is that Jody's fault? No. I'm just mentioning it because these things will become a trend in her life. The following summer, 1997, she went to Costa Rica for three months and as a, an exchange student trying to learn the, more in depth the Spanish language and she ended up rooming with an Arias family in Costa Rica and uh, kind of got involved with their oldest son named Victor. Uh, she, they both fell head over heels for each other and even after she returned home to Wairica, they spent the majority of that next school year writing uh, to each other in Spanish, both email and handwritten letters, very intense love letters. Uh, the next summer, he came to stay with her two weeks in 1998 and got very jealous of her social life. He didn't like her friends. He especially didn't like her male friends. And he was begging her to move back to Costa Rica and get married. However, she didn't. She broke up with him because, again, getting too serious too soon. you got to remember she was only, you know, 17 going on 18 at this time. Um, Jody's family was a non-denominational Christian. Uh, her father had a Catholic background. Her mother was uh, definitely Protestant. But she wasn't really in, wasn't really, really into, like, religion heavily until... Uh, when, uh, until later in the uh, summer of 1998, she was working at her parents' diner and got to talking with a regular customer who was an older man that was very much into a Christian doomsday cult. Oh, Lord. And he would tell her that the end of the world was near, and he would show her all these scriptures and tell her about all these books he read and all these 
uh, forums, you know, this is the ni uh, 90s, early to, you know, getting to be the early 2000s, so chat rooms were a thing, and he was on all these chat rooms, and he introduced her to those, and shows she got involved with preppers. That tends to be a running thing, doesn't it? Uh, and end-of-the-world zealots. Not that all preppers are end-of-the-world zealots, but I'm, I'm just saying. And she began to believe a lot of this, and uh, she began to be scared for her old boyfriend Bobby who was kind of a pagan believed in the occult she called to talk to him at first he didn't want to talk to her but then she sounded so worried he decided he would talk to her remember he just got out of rehab or inpatient you know not long ago from well a couple of years ago from trying to commit suicide after she broke up with him and uh, started talking to him about what this man said he thought it was interesting and they started talking and as a result they became friends and started dating again. Toward the end of 1998, they were back together stronger as ever than a couple. He lived with his grandparents in uh, Montague, California, not far from Wairica. It was a kind of a dilapidated, you know, run-down kind of house, and he lived there alone with his grandparents. Uh, she would often sneak out of her house and go over there and spend the night with him. Her grand The grandparents were fairly old and in early stages of dementia, so Bobby kind of had the run of the house, and so she would spend a lot of time with him. Uh, again, her father caught her sneaking back in the house. They got into a huge fight. He ended up getting so mad, he pushed her against the wall and told her that if she wanted to continue living under their roof, he was going. she was going to play by their rules. Unfortunately, as a lot of teenagers do, she was stubborn, and did not want to follow the rules. So the next very next day, she moved out and moved to Bobby's grandparents' house with Bobby. Her parents were absolutely worried to death, but she was 18, had already dropped out of high school. So what could they do? So they just kind of prayed for her, I suppose. Her parents would call her on the daily, and during one of these phone calls, her father asked her if she would wanted to maybe pursue some mental counseling, some counseling, some therapy, and he would pay for it. She got really offended and basically yelled at him for, you know, 20 or 30 minutes about how she wasn't crazy and hung up on him. Then she continually called him over the rest of the day, and finally he got so exasperated by what was going on. He told her, I was just kidding. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have brought it up. You're fine. You're fine. So that's kind of how people treated Jody her entire life. You're fine. Nothing's wrong. You get a lot of people into a lot of trouble later on. So during this same stretch of time, Bobby's grandparents' dementia got worse and they were actually put into assisted living. So Bobby got the house. And he and Jody would live there together. Uh, basically, she started working a couple of different waitress jobs. One of them was overnight at Denny's. And so, all because Bobby also worked nights, they got into the habit of sleeping during the day. So there wasn't a whole lot of communication between them. Uh, while she was at work, Bobby would often skip work, because of course, and would stay home and start talking to people in chat rooms and on party lines. Remember the old-fashioned party lines? He would talk to people on that, run up the bills. Plus, 
started uh, developing kind of an emotional relationship with a young lady in Louisiana. And Jody found out because as would become a habit in her life, she hacked into his email. It was a Hotmail account, so pretty easy to hack into, and uh, found their love letters. She confronted Bobby. He became... Uh, angry and upset, but he apologized and promised that they would never, it would never happen again. He begged her to stay, and, uh, but they continued to drift apart. The trust was gone. He became distant. She became distant. By 1999, their relationship had turned violent. There was choking, uh, hitting, slapping, throwing people into walls. It wasn't pretty on both sides. They were equally, I guess, abusive to each other. And then in one particularly bad moment, Bobby threatened to kill her entire family. She called 911. Bobby pried the phone out of her uh, hand, hung up. They called back. He said it was a misdial. He basically described in detail how he would kill her entire family if she didn't, you know, get out and leave him the F alone. So she went back to uh, Wairika and lived with her grandparents, Carlton and Carol Allen, one mile from her parents. And these this was her mother's parents. And she still talked to Bobby, though. Uh, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. And she thought it would all be okay, that he would change and they could just be friends. Uh, toward the end of 1999, she went again to Costa Rica, and I thought the same thing. You're probably thinking, good Lord, she's going to go back and find the boy she dated in Costa Rica. No, she just went down there, kind of spent some time by herself, returned with a clear head, and went back to work at her parents' restaurant. Now, for a few months, her and Bobby were kind of off and on. They'd be hot, they'd be cold, but then he moved to Medford, Oregon, which was a bustling little metropolis in southern Oregon, and ended up rooming with a man named Matt McCartney. Uh, and so she would go to Medford to visit Bobby, and her and Matt got ever closer. I think you can see where this is going. And when her and Bobby finally broke up, she and Matt got together. Oh, Jody. Well, as you can imagine, Bobby asked both of them to leave, and they did. Her and Matt got a one-bedroom apartment across town, still in Medford, and she got a waitressing job at a, a Medford Applebee's, and he managed a Subway restaurant. Just like Bobby, Matt was also into the occult and Wicca. He was on a spiritual journey. And as a result, he got her into Wicca, which would be maybe the second time instance of her chameleon herself to the interests of whoever she was with. She pretended to be into whatever they were into, or got legitimately got into whatever they were into so that she could be the perfect partner from them. This would be a ongoing trend in her life. Um, she did, though, enjoy Wiccan with its emphasis on nature and karma, you know, no rules except do no harm, and... But her interest in it, of course, only lasted as long as she was with Matt. In summer of the year 2000, uh, they both got uh, jobs at a at lodge at the Creer Lodge in Oregon. This was a, a popular tourist attraction, and 
they were able to live in staff quarters during the summer and then they would return to their Medford apartment in the fall. By spring of 2001, though, Jody decided that she did not want to work at the, uh, the lodge anymore. So Matt went away for the entire summer to work at the lodge by himself while she kept her job at Applebee's in Medford and she would go travel to see him on weekends. He would come to see her on the weekends, but then he kind of started getting distant and um, she went to actually visit him at his dad's house because he went to his parents' house near Medford uh, instead of coming to see her one weekend and she saw some pictures uh, on his phone of him with another young lady. And later on while working her shift at Applebee's the next week, uh, some co-workers from her, his lodge flagged her down at a table and asked if she was Jody, and she said, yeah, and they literally told her that Matt was dating some other girl at the lodge. Now, I'm wondering what Matt had done to these particular co-workers that would get them to travel all the way into Medford to tell his girlfriend that he was cheating on. I, I have no idea the type of twisted trauma and soap opera these kids were into, but anyway... So, again, when he came to visit his dad, not her, girl, ongoing uh, trend in your life of not being able to realize when you're either being used, lied to, or abused. Anyway, she went to his dad's, confronted him, and they broke up, but not before she had also driven all the way to the Medford Lodge and, com and confronted the girl, a, a Ukrainian by the name of Bianca. Whew. So... Of course, she no longer wanted to be in Oregon after her and Matt split up, so she started looking for other jobs that would provide her some lodging because she did not want to go back to Wairika. So she applied at the at a spa, a Ventona Inn and Spa at Big Sur, which is a Central California coastal resort city. She applied to be a server at their restaurant, which also would include lodgings. And she was hired by the food and beverage uh, manager of the resort, a man 10 year, 20 years older than her named Daryl Brewer and was hired on the spot. But guess who was so upset about the loss of his beloved Jody that he came to the same uh, inn and spa and applied for a job and received one? Matt. I guess it was over with Bianca and he came there looking for a job, he was hired, and they, and because there was no room currently in staff cabins, they were allowed a free space at the campground and lived in a tent together for a couple of weeks. She swore they were just friends. Yeah. And they eventually were given a cabin in staff quarters, and for the next three years, they lived friends, and she actually got promoted to the wedding coordinator job temporarily while there. She did very well. She said this was the best job she ever had. She also got incredibly close to Daryl Brewer, who was 20 years older than her and was divorced and had a young son named Jack. Um, they could not, they had feelings for each other, but they could not date because he was the food and beverage manager. But then he stepped down to being a server himself for whatever reason. 
and uh, they started dating. Uh, their first date was a weekend trip to San Francisco for a 49ers game. They became intimate and they remained uh, an item while living at the resort, even though they lived in separate quarters and she was still living in a room with her ex-boyfriend, Matt. Um, <laughs> yeah. In 2005, they had been dating for about three years when uh, Daryl said that he was leaving the, his job at Big Sur and was going to Monterey, California to be closer to his son Jack and he told her up front he was never going to get married again, did not want any more children, but he did enjoy being with her and had feelings for her and if she wanted to come she could and she quit her job as well and they went and got an apartment in Monterey. She also, in the three years they had been together living in staff quarters, she had nothing to do with her money but save it. And so she had built up $10,000 in savings, had paid cash for breast implants, and had a very, had good credit. She had also had a dream of becoming a real estate agent and had enrolled in a real estate course and wanted to get into investment since we were, as I said before, in the middle of the housing boom. And her and Daryl decided to buy a house in Palm Desert, which is about an hour from Palm Springs in the Coachella Valley. And he and her, one of the biggest mistakes ever is to buy a house with someone you're not married to. Uh, but they co-signed for a $350,000 house in Palm Desert, California. It was a very nice house and a very nice subdivision. Had fruit trees, um, a pool, a fenced yard. Uh, yeah, very nice. They split the mortgage, which was $2,200 a month, but like a lot of people during this housing boom, they got a subprime mortgage because even though her, her credit was good, she didn't have a huge amount of income and uh, his credit was bad because of his divorce, so they ended up with an adjustable rate mortgage. So this mortgage was going to reset in two to three years to a much higher rate. However, they also put no money down because she did not want to deplete her savings. So. There you go. She was working full-time as a server at an uh, Italian restaurant called Pintiati's, and she also tended bar at a Palm Springs area California pizza kitchen. Uh, as she started to think about marriage and kids, she realized she did want to marry Daryl. Here we go. And uh, have kids, but he wasn't having it, and she got antsy with their whole arrangement. Meanwhile, two years later, their mortgage resets, and now it was $2,800 a month, and both of them were having trouble meeting the $1,400 a month half of the mortgage. Uh, she eventually ended up having to spend all of her $10,000 in savings to make mortgage, make, keep up her half of the mortgage payments and part, part of his as well. And also got credit cards and started putting mortgage payments on credit cards until they maxed out. Sounds a lot like what was going on in Travis's life around the same time. Uh, actually, a few years earlier, Travis had already kind of got himself straightened up by this time. And then in 2006, of course, just as their mortgage reset, the housing bubble burst and everything plummeted. 
So they were upside down. Their house had lost value. It was not even worth what they owed on it. And she was running up debt trying to pay the mortgage while uh, the recession kicked off. And of course, you can imagine what that did to uh, bartenders and servers. So she's in a bad way. Then at CPK one night when she was working, her manager, the manager on duty, asked her, where do you see yourself in five years? Of course, now that the housing bubble has burst, uh, her dream of being a real estate agent's also on hold. She didn't know where she was going to be in five years. She just knew that she wanted enough money to save her house. So guess what he was doing? He had just become a prepaid legal services representative and wanted to sign her up. He, She took the DVD he gave her. She, it hung out in her room for several months. She never looked at it, but then finally one day when cleaning, she found it and she decided to check it out. And she, she watched it and she realized she wanted to do it. She had lost long lost contact with uh, her manager from CBK, so she just called the number they gave her and uh, they gave her the number of a local representative by the name of Michelle Hagen and she signed up as a uh, prepaid legal services sales representative under Michelle Hagen. Michelle sent her all the starter kit after she paid her fee and everything but of course that sat in the closet unused for several months but Michelle wanted to get her kick started so she invited her to a conference in Las Vegas in 2006 at the MGM Grand. And now we're going to get into the relationship between Travis and Jody. Let's get into it. Jody, Michelle, and a couple of other new representatives signed up under Michelle took a road trip to Las Vegas. When they got there, they took in some of the motivational speakers, one of which was, of course, Eddie Snow, a.k.a. Travis Alexander. As Travis often does, he wowed Jody. Didn't think much of it. Uh, they went. Her and her friends went to lunch at a rainforest cafe inside the casino. And then as she exited that there, Travis was on the conference floor and saw her. They actually walked in a group to one of the sessions and Travis spent a lot of several minutes talking with her, re really seemed to enjoy talking to each other. Jody says in <clears throat> later depositions, she doesn't, she didn't think much of it. She just knew, like most people, he was just an executive in the company and that's how they all are, very friendly. And then uh, they kind of parted ways. Travis uh, was one of about 20 high-performing um, prepaid legal executives that was invited to the Black and Gold Ball that night. It was just for the highest performers, and but it was, you know, bring somebody kind of thing. He didn't have a date, so another rep suggested he bring a very attractive new representative from California talking about Jody, unbeknownst to Travis. Um, so he introduced them again. They recognized each other. He asked her if he wanted, if she wanted to be his date to this ball. Uh, of course she said yes, but she didn't have a formal dress to wear. Well, luckily he was there with Chris and Skye Hughes. Skye offered to give her the spare dress that he, 
that she had brought with her. They were about the same size. So that evening, just before the ball, they met outside Chris and Skye's room. They went inside. Skye helped her dress in the bathroom, and all, all four of them went to the black and gold ball. While there, she was inspired by all the high-level people she got to hear speak. Uh, Travis was charming, as was uh, Chris and Skye, and they had a great time. They ended up hanging out till about four in the morning, talking. Uh, she also began to see prepaid legal as a decent opportunity, and maybe she ought to give it the full go. And then as a result, they spent the rest of the weekend together. They had brunch, lunch, dinner, hung out in the pool. I'll drop a picture here. Over the weekend, he told her about his, you know, the Mormon church. She got very interested in that, and uh, they ended in, they almost kissed in an elevator, but she pulled back and said she couldn't because she had a boyfriend. She was still technically with Daryl. So, on that final Sunday, they had brunch together, and they said goodbye. He went back to Arizona. She went back to California. Um, well, on the drive home, she was reevaluating her relationship with Daryl. Uh... Travis, they had exchanged numbers. They started texting and emailing. Travis called her later that, you know, later that night and said, told her not to settle for mediocrity, to go for what she wanted. And so the following Thursday, about four days later, she spoke to Daryl and admitted that she didn't want family in a marriage. And if he couldn't give her that, then maybe it was time for them to end. Daryl said he understood, but that wasn't what he wanted for his future. So he was also planning to move to from Montague or from from uh, Palm Desert back to Monterey to be closer to his son and had already taken a job there so this relationship was doomed they were still sleeping together on occasion but uh, he's they decided okay they would split and she was just gonna pursue Travis Daryl did not know about Travis at this time uh, so basically uh, Daryl left her with the house. He said he would still pay his half of the mortgage as he could, but of course he didn't, she couldn't, and she started falling further and further into uh, the rears on the house. But that did not stop her from pursuing Travis Alexander full throttle. And Travis drove into uh, Palm, the Palm Springs area the next weekend. They met up at Chris and Sky Hughes' house, and over the next six months, they spent a lot of time uh, meeting each other. They would hang out with the Hughes. The Hughes actually liked her a lot at first, but this would not be the case for long. While they were at the Hughes' house, they would sleep in separate rooms, and they would go to church with Chris and Sky at the local LDS church. Uh, he gave her a gift of a Book of Mormon. She just absolutely loved it and started devouring it. However, as chaste as they were pretending to be, forced Chris and Sky Hughes, that was not the case. They were sneaking into each other's rooms late at night and doing everything but. So, there you go. Old tricks never die. They would pretty much spend every weekend together at the Hughes house. The Hughes were getting more and more suspicious of her because she was starting to exhibit some strange behavior, which we'll get into, but um, she also was putting herself full throttle into prepaid legal services. She was actually selling a few policies and was 
had started her own uh, little photography business, J Fine Art and Photography. She started a website that Travis helped her with. She started working on it. She booked a few gigs. Uh, but between these two ventures, she never really ever broke $1,000 a month. So she's still in trouble. Um, Travis has still not called her his girlfriend. Um, he would tell most of his close associates with prepaid legal and in the Mormon church, they were just friends, uh, but she wanted to be more. She wanted to transform into his ideal mate. And even though they would spend lots of time on the phone, hours, thousands of texts and emails and MySpace messages and posts, they were in each other's top eight. If you aren't old enough to remember MySpace, you had a top eight, which is like the eight people that you communicate with the most. If you, if you actually go to their MySpace pages today, if you can find them, they're still in each other's top eight. It's weird. Um, so she was really trying to transform herself. She told him she wanted to convert to LDS. He was thrilled. He called some, he called one of the local wards and actually had some missionaries come by and visit her a few times a week to kind of help her with that. And meanwhile, uh, Daryl, of course, is getting notices that the house is in foreclosure, but what, what could he do? He, he wasn't paying anything either, and eventually the house did slip into foreclosure, and if that didn't stop Jody from pursuing Travis. Uh, in 2006, they met on, uh, because Sky and Chris Hughes were out of town, they couldn't meet there, so they met at a small border town uh, called Blythe, Arizona on the border of Arizona and California. They stayed in a hotel. They did everything but. They watched movies. They made mixed CDs. They went to some uh, tourist attractions around there. They, they took a lot of pictures. Uh, they had brunch and they parted. Um, what Jody began to realize is that there was two Travises. There was when he was alone with her, Travis, which was very outgoing, very affectionate, would take pictures with her, great time. Uh, they would talk on the phone, you know, typical boyfriend-girlfriend stuff. But then there was in public Travis, when he was around either people from prepaid legal or LDS, it was almost like he kept her at arm's length. He would not hold her hand. He would not do anything and this kind of fit into some of that awkward behavior that we were talking about that Chris and Sky Hughes started to notice and one reason they didn't want her around anymore. So let's get into that, shall we? When they were at Chris and Sky's house, they still made the big show of sleeping in separate rooms, uh, but Travis would not be affectionate with her in front of Chris and Sky, and then she would try to force it. She would try to hold his hand. You, you ever had that awkward moment where you tried to hold somebody's hand and they, they'll go like that? That's kind of what he would do. She would try to force herself onto his lap when they were sitting in the living room. It was making him very uncomfortable. Uh, one day he got up and went to the, uh, the restroom and accidentally left his phone uh, in the living room. She Sky saw her grab his phone and start reading his texts. Um... She also became obsessed with the Book of Mormon while they were just hanging out with Skye and Chris. She would often be reading the Book of Mormon and, you know, like dabbing her eyes like it was making her cry. 
it was just really weird. As October of 2006 kind of slipped into November of 2006, Travis was starting to distance himself from Jody. And this is where Jody kind of turned up full throttle. I want to convert to LDS. And because Travis felt that he had kind of started her on the path to this moment, he felt he had to kind of see it through. So when she asked him to baptize her in the church, of course, he decided that he would he would do that. Um, in addition, uh, Jody kind of considered Sky her best friend, you know, even though Sky didn't really care for Sky Hughes. So she would ask Sky lots of questions about Travis, talk about Travis very obsessively. Uh, Sky thought it was a little weird, and she mentioned it to Travis, and Travis said, honestly, Sky, she really considers you her best friend. And Sky was like taken aback. I hardly know this girl. I only know her because of you, and there's something off about her. Anyway, so there was kind of a lot of going back and forth. Travis was teetering on the edge of either breaking up with her or fully committing to her. So I guess they were just trying to figure it out. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Jody had been working at a, uh, a pretty fancy restaurant called Bean Crosby's uh, near Palm Springs. And uh, her co-workers even noticed she had changed. Uh, she was no longer bubbly and a good server, that she would often be late for her shift because she could not start her shift without first either texting uh, or talking to Travis. If she texted him and he did not text her right away, or if she called him and he didn't pick up, she would not even come in for her shift. She would sit in her car until she heard from him. She was that obsessed with him, and her co-workers were really starting to worry too. As, 2000, as 2006 uh, waned on, um, she would actually go visit him in Mesa. He would often bring her in as part of large group events. Um, you know, he would have a bunch of his friends from the singles ward over to the house watching the MMA fights or whatever, and he would invite her to be part of that. Or, and there was act or part of a prepaid legal service. So he would have her there as part of a large group. But then she would come in and kind of announce herself as Travis's girlfriend. And he would say, you know, she's not my girlfriend. We just date a little bit. Jody, red flag. You in danger, girl. Anyway. And Travis was definitely in danger. So that kind of weirdness. And one time he had a bunch of people that were flying in for a Phoenix a prepaid legal event, and he had a bunch of people stay at his house. Unfortunately, all the space in his house was booked up, and there was no room for Jody. so she said she would stay with someone else or just get a hotel room, but she came over to visit him that night, you know, just hang out with everybody, which was fine, but then she never left. Uh, Travis was sleeping on the couch because he let a couple of the other people have his room, and so she ended up sleeping on the floor next to the couch and never went to her hotel. He almost seemed to start putting more and more distance between them, even though they would still go trap, go to meet each other. They were still very sexual. They would take road trips together. And he was a totally different person than he was in front of people that he knew. It began to dawn on Jody that it may be more about sex with Travis as he was getting a lot more experimental. Uh, the everything but had a lot more butts behind it, and um, they were 
doing lots of different things from fantasy role play to toys to whatever. But then again, he would hardly talk to her if they were in public. So, yeah. So he, she decided she was going to do the age-old thing of trying to make him jealous. She started dating a young prepaid legal services rep she met at a conference named Abe Albahadi. Um, she would often talk to Abe about Mormonism. He just wasn't into it. He said it was too restrictive. And they ended up splitting up, of course, but that didn't stop her from, you know, using all these men that she would flirt with at conferences to try to make Travis jealous. Um, and eventually, you know, she was baptized into the Mormon church. Travis was there to submerge her and bring her up out of the water. And they both dressed in white, surrounded by some elders. I'll drop a picture here. And, uh, yeah, and he would get a little bit jealous about these other men, but mostly because they weren't Mormon, not because I think he necessarily wanted her just because these other men weren't Mormon. And he said, why would you waste the gift you've been given? You were so into Mormonism. It's just kind of weird. Um, and then in December of 2006, uh, Jody sent forwarded Travis an email, and while he was at Chris and Sky Hughes' house, uh, of a stalker, supposed stalker from a unknown email address, threatening her and saying that Travis was too far away to protect her. Travis got worried and showed the, the forwarded email to Sky. Sky laughed and said, uh, this is obviously Jody doing this to make you scared, and of course, he and Joe, uh, he and Sky got into it. Said Jody wouldn't do that, and it just kind of came out during this argument that uh, Sky thought that Travis was just using her for sex, and that she knows what's going on, and that's wrong. So they had this huge blow up, Sky and Travis. During that blow up, Travis said, "I do care about her. I just hadn't figured out what to do yet." Meanwhile, Sky is also talking to Jody and advising her just to cut her losses and get away, that there are other Mormon men that are eligible more and more marriage-minded than uh, Travis. Just, he's using you, don't do it. Girl, you should have listened. It would have saved his life and yours too. So, anyway, uh, but that didn't stop her from pursuing uh, Travis. Uh, she traveled to Mesa on a certain weekend when Travis couldn't come to California and visited him at 2 a.m., uh, they had a nice couple of days together. Um, he got up and went to the restroom at one point, and she had his laptop because they were looking, uh, surfing the web and looking at stuff. And while on his computer, she hacked into his email and his MySpace and saw kind of flirtatious messages between him and other women. She kept it quiet, continued her weekend. And then 2006 kind of rolls into 2007. Uh, they're still doing this weird sexual thing, you know, where they'll meet up either in Arizona or California or some other destination, do their thing. Travis is completely different than he is when he's around people he knows. Um, but by March of 2007, Travis was starting to get really wary of Jody and a little bit concerned, too, about her behavior. Um, Jody, about that time, who still considered Skye her best friend, was telling Sky about uh, the messages he saw. She saw in Travis's email. Sky said, "Girl, I told you, 
you need to get out of this. You know, I'm, I'm doing this for the best for both of you. He's just not that into you and not for marriage. And you need to do better than this. But again, in April of 2007, uh, Sky and Chris invited Jody and Travis over for the weekend. And uh, during that time, uh, Chris and Travis hung out together, and then you know Sky and Jody were in another room. But literally, I think Sky was at her wit's end with Jody, and she texted Chris, who was with Travis, "She's driving me crazy. Save me." And Chris saw that come up on. I mean, uh, Travis saw that come up on uh, Chris's uh, phone, and got pretty upset. Uh, later that night, uh, after Jody had gone to bed in her room, he goes to, he went to the master bedroom, knocked on it, and Chris and Skye let him in, and they had a conversation, uh, where they basically confronted him about everything. They told him about all the time she had looked at his phone, everything, and advised him to keep her at arm's length. Uh, Sky literally said, I'm afraid she's going to hack you up and put you in her refrigerator. And he laughed. Oh, the irony. Uh, but then in the middle of their conversation, they hear a slight noise and they all stop. And they're just kind of listening. And then boom, 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 knock. And there was Jody standing outside their door. Um, Travis spoke to her and said, hey, I'll come see you before I go to bed, going back to bed. And so they thought she went to bed, but she was just kind of lingering in the hall to hear what she can hear. And did that for about 30 minutes when she came back to the door. And Travis got really upset at this point. And he asked her what was going on. She just basically said, is this a private conversation? They said, actually, it is. Um, do you mind? I will come see you before I go to bed. But Sky and Chris would later say that the look on her face was demented and evil, almost like a demon had come forth. And for a few minutes, they contemplated bringing their children into their room to sleep because they didn't know what she was capable of. So she did go away, but they found her skulking in the halls a couple of more times. Eventually, Travis went to see her and then went to bed. Uh, Sky and Chris stayed awake most of the night listening. Uh, they decided not to bring their children into the room, but they were really worried. And the next day, they pretty much point blank in front of them said that Jody was no longer welcome at their house. Uh, they were not sure what she was capable of, but they did not want her around their children. And basically, uh, Travis blew up and said, well, fine, we won't come here anymore. And Chris said, you're not going to use our house as a meeting place anymore. So that was over. And so the next weekend, he and Jody were driving to Oklahoma for a prepaid legal conference. Uh, meanwhile, her house has been foreclosed on and everything, and she's living in an apartment now in California. But um, they're on their way to Oklahoma, and uh, Tim McGraw's Live Like You Were Dying comes on the radio, and Travis, who normally hates country music, was pretty enthralled with this, and so he turns it up. And that's actually one of my favorite songs, too, but it's basically about a man who finds out he's terminally ill and lives like it's you know the last time of, time of his life, and he decides he wants to do that. So he says, Jody, we don't need to meet up at the Hughes house. The whole world is our 
room and you know plus they got which is kind of ironic and he also uh while in oklahoma picked up a book that said two thousand places you need to visit before you die and that's literally what they started doing they started going all over they went to mormon you know historical mormon places places that brigham young and joseph smith had done you know historically stuff in the mormon church in they went to both disney world and disneyland they toured all the LDS temples. They went to other roadside attractions that, you know, you see when you're going cross-country. And they acted just like a couple on the, on, the, on the road. Took lots of pictures. I'll drop a few of them here. And then you had a wonderful, wonderful time. But then, when they would meet at prepaid legal conferences or at Mormon functions, it was the Mormon Travis. He wouldn't hold her hand, wouldn't look at her. Uh, and then, at a conference, a prepaid legal rep by the name of Clancy got a little forward with Jody in front of Travis, and Travis did nothing to stop him. So for Jody, that, I guess, was kind of a... a kind of the last straw. Uh, she moved out of her apartment and moved back to the um, Inn and Spa at Big Sur, where she could live rent-free, started piling up money again, uh, and then go see Travis when she could, still the same kind of behavior going on. Finally, when they were together in Mesa, um, she was doing her whole thing about following Travis around and trying to force affection on him, and Taylor Surrey felt kind of sorry for it. Her, and he took her aside and said, look, Travis has interest in other girls. He's not going to marry you. Please don't waste your time. You're too intelligent and too smart to, to let to be played like this. Just go your own way. And his neighbor, David, who is in no way connected with Travis at all other than talking to him, told her the same thing when he, she struck up a conversation with him in the yard. Um, tr uh, Taylor also spoke to Travis about it, and so did Dave, and he admitted he needed to break up with her. And as 2007, you know, kind of turned into 2008, they were kind of in this weird holding pattern because Travis knew that she was not the celestial wife he wanted, and yeah. Jody was also keeping up her habit of Hack of looking at his uh, texts and his email, why you didn't change your passcodes, Travis, I don't know. But kept it to herself because they had a two-week road trip plan. They went to New York, they toured all these historical Mormon places, and then they finished it up with a uh, beach, Huntington Beach, California vacation that Jody won from Repaid Legal. She was actually doing pretty well in the company now. And um, while they were asleep, uh, she heard a message ding in on Travis's phone. It was a, a female texting, hey, how are you? How's the trip? Miss you. Jody actually texted back on as Travis on his phone. I'm cuddle time with Jody. Can't talk right now. And then once she sent it, she deleted it from his phone. Weird stuff. Uh, they parted ways. He went back to Mesa. She went back to uh, Big Sur, and uh, Travis, one night at a um, singles ward event, met a young lady by the name of Lisa Andrews, 
She was 19. He was pushing 30. But he immediately got smitten with her. He started flirting with her at all the functions. She was, however, dating a, uh, a young man by the name of uh, Steve Hall. Um, but they got really close. And eventually, once she broke up with uh, Steve, they started officially dating. This was someone that Travis really thought could be the perfect Mormon wife. And finally, by uh, June of 2007, he and Jody officially broke up. She was devastated. He was at ease. Um, yeah. Now, um, this is where the stories kind of part ways. Um, people that were interviewed during his, uh, you know, relationship with Lisa Andrews said that they would... Uh, you know, it's kind of that everything but situation with her, too. Um, but, you know, with Jody, he was doing everything and by this time. And according to friends on both sides, this continued. Even while he was seeing Lisa, he was still having sexual escapades with Jody. And she would come see him. He would go to California. They still exchanged all kinds of graphic messages. Uh, meanwhile, um... Uh, she moved to Mesa. Um, according to Jody, uh, Travis encouraged her and asked her to move. According to Travis and his friends, they, she wanted no part of it, but he couldn't stop her. And so she eventually uh, found through a Mormon Facebook group someone that would, or MySpace group, would, that found a Mormon family that would rent a room to her. And so she moved, and she started working at a couple of different uh Restaurants in the Mesa era, Mimi's and uh, P.F. Chang's, and still worked for prepaid legal. She also done some photography, and Travis would pay her $200 a month to clean his house. And she only lived four miles away. He was really freaked out when he realized how close she was living. Uh, and then they would continue to have sex while he's dating Lisa. He, she even baked him a cake on his 30th birthday. Uh, and brought it over with Lisa at his house. So a lot of different stuff going on. Um, uh, she would do weird things like uh, slip into his house through the doggy door and surprise him. She one time caught uh, he and uh, Lisa making out on the couch. She had snuck in through a side door and saw them, didn't say a word, backed out. Um, tempers were starting to flare because several times she just walked up in his house while he was there with Lisa, nothing going on, and that he would have to explain to Lisa she was just a friend and Jody Lisa was just a friend, even though she had caught just a very tangled web that Travis was beginning to weave here. It, it, he could have saved his life if he had let Jody go completely at this point. So he, he continued to still travel with Jody, uh, sleep with her, date Lisa. Uh, he also went to the local Mormon church and confessed his sins. He told people, his counselor at the church, what was going on. They encouraged him to break it off, but he just couldn't. And then he started to notice things missing from around his house. Jody was literally stealing from him. And... Then Lisa started getting threatening messages from an unknown email and an unknown uh, cell phone. Uh, and everybody but Travis knew it was Jody. 
Finally, in 2008, with the recession in full swing, Travis had to kind of back away from his uh, both of these tangled relationships because he was business was starting to go downhill. He was starting to lose money. His house had lost value. So he started buckling down and coming up with new ways to make money, and he broke up with Lisa as a result. Uh, also quit hanging out with Jody. He also had a new roommate that moved in at the time, a young man named Zach Billings. And he rented him the third room in this house for $450 a month. So he was really trying to buckle down. Meanwhile, uh, he ran into Lisa at a Mormon function. They ended up rekindling and getting back together. And then the famous tire, two, three in a row tire slashes uh, happened. This was in uh, February of 2008. Uh, Travis was at Lisa's and discovered his tire slashed. Uh, on his BMW the following morning, uh, he got his tires replaced. They went back to Lisa's. Again, Jody slashed his tires again. Didn't know it was Jody at the time, but we suspected. And then a few days later, Lisa was at his house and her tires were slashed. So everybody suspected it was Jody, including Travis. Me, and, uh, and there is some rumor going on that perhaps Jody helped him get his uh, tires fixed a couple of those times, only so she could slash him again, but we don't know about that. And then the weirdest thing of all, to save money, he decided to sell his BMW, but Jody wanted to buy it. And so he sold it to her for $6,000 for $100 a month and then bought a used Toyota Prius. Travis. Cut this chick out of your life. Jody, cut him out of your life. Uh, then eventually Lisa got tired of the whole tire slashing thing and split up with him. He started dating a young woman by the name of Mimi Hall. Um, Jody really hit the roof because she thought that Mimi might actually be the one for Travis, the one he would settle down with. And so she started... Again, breaking into his house and stealing things, uh, harassing Mimi, all kinds of stuff. Uh, finally, she had enough of it. She moved in March of 2008. She told Travis she was moving back to Wairika to live with her grandparents again. And in April, she did just that, even though they had sex the night before she left. Finally, we get to June of 2009, actually late May, when the trip was first planned, uh, Travis was invited on an exclusive trip to Cancun for the best PPLS uh, reps. Chris Hughes was going, Taylor was going, a lot of people were going, and originally he had invited Jody, but then had a change of heart and uninvited her and asked Mimi to go, even though Mimi had told him at the time she was starting to date someone else that she only wanted to be friends. But he still said, come on, let's go. We'll get separate rooms. So that was the plan that on June 4th, 2008, they were all going to Cancun. And as you can imagine, Jody went through the roof that she had been uninvited for a woman that she hated. And that's where we're going to end right before the crime. I'll be back tomorrow with the final part of this saga. I'm going to get it in three parts, y'all. I apologize for the length of this, but I'll be back real soon. Until next time, Keto Coffee.